Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 News, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. The audience is drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. The Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, will delve into this topic. I'm Nancy Karabjanian. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Now we join our A Matter of Facts podcast host, Nancy Karabjanian. A bowl of cereal, a Sunday supper of roast chicken, corn, and mashed potatoes, or how about a salty, satisfying bag of chips, the food we eat. We can read labels and follow a recipe, but it is so much more than from farm to store shelf to your table. On this edition of the Delaware Humanities, a Matter of Facts podcast will go beyond what we think, or more accurately, what we may not want to know about our food and how production, way before we even open the bag or add milk to the bowl, could be more science than nature. I'm Nancy Karabjanian. Our guest is McKay Jenkins, investigative journalist, professor at the University of Delaware, and the author of the recent eye-opening book, Food Fight, GMOs, and the Future of the American Diet. Welcome. Thanks for having me. First, I kind of want to explore the line that connects the dots, because it it seems to me that not only can science clarify things for us, but science also muddies this issue. We've got a very polarized view on, on what GMOs mean, and should we be concerned and afraid, or should we be celebrating what science can give us? So help me connect those dots. That's a great question, and it's a complicated question, because it's hard to think about the science without thinking about the reason that we're talking about the science in the first place. So one way to think about this is ask the question, why is it that we're talking about GMOs? And that is a very specific question at a very specific point in history. So the reason we're talking about GMOs is because we are not talking about farms. And the reason we're not talking about farms is because we don't have any more farms. So those of us who've grown up around this area in the mid-Atlantic have seen hundreds of thousands of small family farms disappear over the last 40 or 50 years. So before World War II, what the American landscape looked like was cities surrounded by farms all around the country. After the war ended, uh, we came back and built this interstate highway system that connects all the big cities and crisscrosses the country. And that, the building of those roads, is what allowed millions of people to leave cities and build houses in what they used to say out in the country. What out in the country meant, of course, was building subdivisions on top of farms. So we all know about what happened to American cities when this happened. The so-called white flight, the suburbanization, pulled a lot of people and a lot of money out of cities. Where I live in Baltimore, the city collapsed. Places like Detroit, Milwaukee, they all collapsed because everyone left to go out to what we then called the suburbs. But what the suburbs were built on top of was farms. So all that is to say that the way we eat can actually be traced to the way we basically redesigned our entire landscape. We now have cities surrounded by ring after ring after ring of suburbs, and all the farms disappeared. So all these suburbanites still had to eat. The problem is they had no place to buy food. So all the food production migrated to the Midwest. 
And as it migrated, as the farms disappeared and grew into these gargantuan industrial farms in the Midwest, they did what they do really well, which is they grow basically three crops. They grow wheat, corn, and soybeans. So if you get in your car, as I did for this book, and you can drive from the coast of Delaware all the way to Denver, and you will basically see three kinds of things growing. You'll see corn, you'll see wheat, and you'll see soybeans. You won't see vegetables, you won't see wildflowers, you won't even see forests. You just see, in this case, we're talking about about 300 million acres of monoculture crops. Those crops are what the entire American food system is built on top of. So when you walk into a supermarket and you look at what seems like this endless variety of food, 47,000 different products in a supermarket, that seems like a great diversity of things to eat. In fact, almost all of that stuff is built out of these three grains. All the stuff in the middle of the supermarket, the sodas, the processed food, the junk food, all that stuff is built out of different configurations of corn, wheat, and soy. Then you think about going into the meat aisle. All the meat that you buy, whether it's beef or whether it's uh, pork or whether it's chicken, all that stuff has been fed these grains. So when we're talking about GMOs, really that's kind of the, the most recent element of this conversation about how our food system got so abstract and so uh, alienated from us, where we, you know, when you're talking about a GMO, you're talking about a culture, a generation of people that couldn't even tell you like where a potato grows. My students sometimes will tell me they think potatoes grow on trees. And why wouldn't they? Because they've never actually seen a potato. They don't know that they grow in the ground. So if they did know that a potato grew in the ground, they might not want to eat it because it has dirt on it, you know. So what they like to think of is a potato is something that comes pre-sliced and salted in a, in a nice vacuum-sealed bag. So we've become very abstracted from our food, and therefore when we talk about GMOs, we don't even really know where to start because somebody told us that GMOs are good or bad, but we're like 30 or 40 years into this abstraction from food, and GMOs is just like the latest version of that. I'm not uninformed. But I'm probably, like so many people, willfully ignorant because I don't sit there and look at my plate and think about where my food came from. Is that just a general lack of will among people in this country, or is it just a reality of the fact that we have to eat? Right. I, I think this is a really important question, and it's why I like to, to try to convince people not to feel guilty about their ignorance, just to acknowledge ignorance, because the ignorance that you have and that we all have is not our fault. We were born, in the most literal sense, we were born into a landscape where there are no farms. So how could you possibly, when someone says, you know, do you know which farmer grew your food? The answer is always no. But how could it be anything other than no if the farmer that grew your food lives in California or lives in Nebraska? So ignorance is, in this case, is not really a matter of personal responsibility for ignorance. It's a matter of a landscape that has changed radically, probably more radically than any landscape has changed in the history of, of human development. Now, the problem is that once you know that, you know, once you, you, you become aware of the abstraction that you and everybody else has, then you can actually take steps to improve that. Because with a little bit of effort, you actually can find farmers that will grow your food. And this is the, my recommendation in this book, is that the way you undo a lot of really negative uh, trajectories here with food is to actually reinvest yourself in local producers, local farmers. Because as few as there are, there are still some hanging on, and they deserve our support. Because if you think about it, 
if you give your money to local farmers instead of global food conglomerates, that farmer becomes wealthier, which may allow him to resist the temptation of selling his land to a developer, which means his farm will stay open space. We will continue to supply farmers markets with local food, preferably organic food. And more importantly, is that the people that live here will understand more directly where their food comes from. You call it a food fight, but maybe it's even okay to call it a food war. Because we have, you know, different elements of the consensus of where the information is coming from. It's difficult to find the middle ground. And in some ways, you know, it's very dangerous under the current state of affairs of where things are going with with policy. Um, But you've got big business, you've got lobbyists, you've got government. And in the bottom tier of all of this, the lower strata is my dinner plate. Exactly. That really is the most important and perceptive question of all of this, because these entire systems that we're talking about are built on the relationship between industry and government. Let's put it this way. The the landscape changed with the building of the highways and and the loss of the farms and the building of the industrial farms. That happened 40 and 50 years ago. But what has happened since is the power and the economic and political strength that has aggregated into the hands of a very few companies now dictates tens of billions of dollars of federal agricultural spending. So therefore, the reason that it's so cheap to buy a two-liter bottle of soda is because the government has decided to have a farm policy that benefits the cheap growth of corn, which allows the cheap production of soda, which allows a soda company to sell you a two-liter bottle for 99 cents, which is probably actually less than it costs to make it because the government subsidies are so fat. Now think about the difference between spending 99 cents for a two-liter bottle of soda, which has what we call empty calories. It's got a lot of calories and no nutrition versus spending $3 for a head of lettuce from an organic small local farmer. Now, why is that difference in price so dramatic? It's because the local farmer is actually charging you what it costs to grow that thing. He's getting no help from federal policy. The giant corn conglomerate is getting millions of dollars from from, uh, federal subsidies to grow corn below the cost of production. So you think about the food pyramid. Another way to think about the food pyramid is it's entirely built on the back of about six companies, all of whom are getting huge amounts of money from the feds in order to produce high-calorie, low-nutrition food. And the result, of course, is a national obesity epidemic, a national diabetes epidemic, a national high blood pressure epidemic, all a direct result of eating a very calorie-dense, nutrition-empty diet. So all of this stuff can be laid at the feet of the power that these companies have aggregated and the government, which basically does their bidding. There's no sense that the government regulates these companies. These companies dictate policy and the government follows the companies. There's no question about that. So it sounds like this is a U.S. scenario. This is We hear so much about the global food war, the global food fight to make sure that there's a plate at every table, but it sounds like this is just very domestic. The vast majority of this is happening in the United States. There are a couple of European companies. Syngenta is a Swiss company. Bayer and BASF are big German uh, food and chemical conglomerates. But basically, this is a handful of American and European companies that have monopolized the production of these, these grains. 
And your point is a really good one because the rhetoric that these companies will will use to try to convince the public to get on board with this is they'll say almost literally, uh, we need our products to feed a starving world. They say over and over and over again. The reason they have to say that is because GMOs have such a bad reputation among the public. So that is a is a is a uh, what they call a red herring. Like that that is a misleading rhetorical. Uh, device, because the fact is there are certain uses of GMOs that can be very beneficial. There's no doubt about it. You can use the technology to do things like uh, create uh, nutrient-rich grains for people in Asia, like what they call golden rice, or you can create what's called a golden cassava. You can have a a, a white root vegetable that if you alter the genetics, you can have it be filled with beta carotene, which will allow children to not go blind when they're young. That's genetic modification in the interest of specific people in specific places. That is not what these companies are talking about. What these companies are talking about is continuing this tidal wave of cheap processed food that they are trying to spread around the world. The vast bulk of GMOs by volume is the the garbage food that is consumed by Americans and is now increasingly being pushed on South Americans. So you're seeing these companies go into places like Brazil and Argentina and Paraguay and mow down rainforests so that they can plant more monoculture crops like soybeans and corn so that they can turn around and feed them to more cheap beef or to create more cheap sodas and processed food. The world does not need that kind of food. And when you use genetic modification to increase the volume of bad food, nobody needs that. Americans don't need that. Europeans don't want it and haven't even allowed it. And South Americans now are fighting, sometimes in places like Chile, they're, they're passing federal law to keep this stuff out. Like there's a real backlash against this stuff. And these companies know this, and that's why they're trying to find some kind of marketing tool to make this stuff more palatable when the public just doesn't want it. You're one guy. <laughs> one guy in a car looking at the farmland, doing this research, investigating this. This is, um, this is your third book on this particular element of our food supply it's kind of a dangerous territory, it sounds like. I mean, I'm immediately going to what Hollywood would do with this, and they'd have you being followed. And it sounds a little bit like you're you're dipping your toe into very dangerous territory. Well, I don't I don't think it's so much dangerous. I, I do think that these companies are fighting a public relations battle, and they're clearly winning because the you know there is some resistance to it, but they're still you know, some of the biggest companies in the world, some of the biggest chemical companies, biggest agricultural companies, the the same companies own all the chemicals and all the seeds. They bought out all the seed companies, all the chemical companies have have combined. So we're talking about concentration of power in very few hands. I don't think they're worried about a few dissenters because, you know, they've just basically monopolized the whole food system. I do think that this is one of these issues for the American public that is strangely both right in your face and invisible at the same time. Like you can walk through a supermarket for, you know, the next 30 years and never see the word GMO unless it's on like a package saying this has no GMOs, but you won't see a label that says this does have GMOs because they're not required to do it. So like every day you're eating three meals a day and chances are very good that you're eating GMOs every single time you sit down to eat, even though you don't know it. And even though even though the food in your restaurants and in the supermarkets is all being determined by these very few companies. So for my money, 
You know, my point here is not that the technology is worth getting angry about. The technology is just a technology can be used for this or for that. There are many cases where uh, genetic engineering can be used for very positive things. What I'm talking about is allowing a corporate control of a food system to dictate a diet that is essentially unhealthy for the vast majority of people that are eating in the United States. And without opening up a whole other can of worms, which would take us another half hour to talk about, it's the poorest people in the country that get the worst of this because their food choices are far more limited than people with means. Like if you can go to Whole Foods, you can go to Whole Foods and find all kinds of stuff that is not, forget about GMOs, it's not garbage calories. But if you live in a poor neighborhood, your options are essentially either nothing or garbage calories. And it turns out those garbage calories are generally built on top of these genetically modified industrial scale crops. Let's talk a little bit about Delaware because agriculture is huge in this state. This is one of those states where, you know, in a matter of a half an hour from the tip near Philadelphia, you can be in farmland, but that is mostly, you know, chicken farms, which then leads to chicken waste, which has become an issue over the past couple of decades for what it's doing to the river, to the Chesapeake Bay, and to the groundwater. Um, Is there a, you know, a sense that somebody is going to put a stake in the ground and say, okay, we need to fix this because it comes and goes whether or not this is an issue. The chicken manure becoming, you know, something good for everybody is something we've even heard in the past. These are excellent questions. And the chicken industry is a perfect example of a way of producing food that is very popular. Obviously, people eat a lot of chicken nuggets, and they eat a lot of fried chicken, and they buy a lot of oven stuffer roasters and all the rest of it. But it's a system that has gotten so big and so concentrated that it is creating enormous environmental consequences. So this has become a really delicate thing for a lot of political people because, you know, if you're whether you're living in Delaware or where I'm from in Maryland, you have chicken companies that are enormously powerful and actually have great influence over political processes. So governors typically are very reluctant to take them on. And the companies say, look, if, you know, we wouldn't be so pig if we weren't, if we weren't so popular. I mean, the the stuff they make is eaten by a lot of people. I think on the Eastern shore uh, right now, there's something like 570 million chickens that are alive on any given day. That's a lot of chickens. They're also consuming the vast majority of the grains that are being grown on the Eastern shore, which typically is soybeans, which are being grown to feed these chickens. So from the industry standpoint, this is a huge success. There are gigantic companies that are economically powerful. From a political standpoint, these companies have so much influence on politics that we can't clean up the negative consequences, like you say, the mountains, in some cases actually literal physical mountains of chicken manure that's being created, which leaches into these creeks, leaches into Delaware Bay, leaches into Chesapeake Bay, creates algae blooms that kill you know, everything in sight, the, uh, the hypoxic, what they call dead zones in the bay, from what they call you know, excess nutrients, is the, the amount of phosphorus and nitrogen that's coming out of these Chicken farms is a colossal problem. They talk about the amount of chicken manure in the Chesapeake Bay is the equivalent of the amount of human waste, human manure from four major American cities, like, you know, cities the size of Washington and Boston. This is untreated sewage going into the Chesapeake from chickens. Now, you can require that people clean up human waste, human sewage, but we have not yet been able to put, uh, you know, a, a block on this chicken manure. So this is a, a consequence of industrial farming. 
You know, if I think what's what's concerning is, and putting current politics aside, if you were to ask a climatologist what the paramount issue is for our country right now, they would say climate change. They would, you know, pinpoint it on rising sea levels for the state of Delaware. If you asked an economist in the state what the concern is, they would say the attrition of the chemical industry and the attrition of the banking industry. So it has to, there has to be a groundswell somewhere for this to become a paramount issue more so than my taxes are going to go up because the banks have left and the chemical companies have shuttered. Right. I mean, this is, this is the, the perpetual problem for environmental work and for social justice work, which is people are more concerned with what's going on in their pocketbook than they are in kind of structural long-term problems. Like climate, when you said climate change, my first thought is that industrial agriculture is one of the primary drivers of climate change. Uh, growing meat, especially, you know, you'll you'll often hear a climate scientist say, the single best thing that any individual can do to reduce their carbon footprint is to eat less meat, because feeding cows and feeding chickens is a very fossil fuel intensive process. So they're not saying become a vegetarian; they're saying eat less or become aware of how carbon intensive the way you eat is. The amount of of, uh, of fossil fuels that it takes to feed these animals through synthetic fertilizers and things like that, the amount of energy it takes to ship a cow across the United States once it's been turned into a hamburger, the amount of uh, fossil fuels it takes to grow the grains that are fed to all these animals, it's an enormous amount. So the way you eat has a direct impact on things like climate. The other thing, of course, is industrial agriculture is destroying American soil. You ask any soil scientist about the state of the farming uh, uh, landscape, the soil chemistry has been destroyed by these synthetic fertilizers, these synthetic herbicides and pesticides. So we need to get get back to a sense of holistic thinking about the way we grow our food. We grow food differently now in the United States than any humans have ever done in the history of the world in any place in the world. This has been a, you know, a 50 or 60 year experiment, which has produced a lot of stuff. It's produced cheap food, but it has also destroyed the soil, destroyed waterways, destroyed the climate, destroyed our national waste line. So, you know, it's, we, we need to not be blind to the consequences of, of feeding ourselves this way. And it's not just to the environment that's already been there, right? You, you create crops that are super crops, Superman crops, where only kryptonite can take care of them. What happens to every other crop that's out there? I mean, eventually, aren't we just going to whittle all the way down once we've got this super produced, disease-resistant, bruise-resistant apple? am I still going to be able to get a pink lady apple? I don't think so. Well, this is a really important point. So I'll take a couple stabs at this. One of the things is that if you're growing uh, 200 million acres of of monoculture soybeans and corn, for example, and you're going to spray a weed killer like uh, glyphosate known as Roundup on all these millions and millions of acres, it's going to kill everything except the corn or the soybeans, which is fine for the farmer. It increases yield and and allows them not to have to... uh, um, weed this by hand, which is, you know, what, what people, they say that people have spent more time weeding in the history of mankind than any other labor. So it would make sense that you'd want to find a chemical that could kill it. But th- what we didn't count on was that by killing all these weeds, one of the weeds we're killing, for example, is milkweed. Now, milkweed is the only, is the primary food source for monarch butterflies. So when you spray millions of acres of soybeans with a weed killer that kills the milkweed, 
you are ruining the uh, the food sources for monarchs. Now, if you look at the populations of monarchs, we're down to about 4%. So monarch butterflies, one of these great charismatic species, is on the very edge of going extinct. And it is very precisely because of the way we grow food that monarchs are disappearing. So by creating monoculture soybeans and killing all the weeds, we're losing the monarchs. That's one thing. And then your comment about the apples, if you have companies like McDonald's, which are one of the primary buyers, the biggest buyers of all apples, and they dictate that they want a very specific number of uh, kinds of apples, that's what farmers are going to grow because that's their big customer. And when they only want Gala and Empire apples and that's it, then all the variety of apples that you would find somewhere else disappear. I think they say now that we are eating about 10% of the varieties of apples that we ate 40 or 50 years ago. That we're eating about 97% fewer varieties of all produce than we did about 50 years ago. So as all these things become concentrated and centralized, we're losing all kinds of variety and diversity, both in terms of our food and in terms of our ecological health. It's all becoming concentrated into a very few number of species. But you're not saying science isn't a part of the equation to fix this. Like you you support the science to find remedies, to find solutions, correct? Absolutely. Science did not cause the problems. What it causes the problems is industrial centralization and scale. Science is just, you know, science is just like genetic engineering. It can be used for this or for that. So it, it is a matter of how you use the science. We couldn't get out of these problems if we didn't have science. On the other hand, there is a certain kind of personality that fetishizes science and technology, which says always, whatever the problem is, we'll find a technology to fix it. The cynical view is that every version of technology is there to fix the problems caused by the previous version of technology. So, you know, what I try to do with my students is to do low-tech stuff like take them to a farm and have them work on a farm and understand how things function. Instead of, I mean, I guess the goal here is to overcome this this gap, this this. Uh, this alienated space between people and the and their land and people and their food. And once people have a more intimate sense of the way things are grown and the way things function, they may make better choices. They will understand why it would be important to support local farmers, why it would be stupid to give up all responsibility for your food to some corporation that, you know, might exist 2,000 miles away. Let's arm those who are listening with some information so that they can use to stay informed and perhaps not have this just be something that immediately goes into the back burner and to become motivated. Because studies do show, as you mentioned, people care about this. They may not know why, they may not understand it, but they care about it. So how can you help people figure out how to tune into the knowledge and turn that in to something that is a point of action? It's a really good point. Um, you know, for a couple of decades now, the the single answer to that question has always been to buy organic, 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 organic. And the reason for that was the primary fear that people had was that the chemicals that were being sprayed on food was somehow dangerous to them. So one of the early strategies of this local food movement was to scare people by saying the chemicals used on your food are bad for you. And so eat organic. That was what we've been hearing for decades. Um, I think now what's what's really helpful about this local thing is that it's not a, just about chemistry. It's also about where the food is being grown. And so my primary thing, I guess the, the first and most important recommendation I have is to see if you can buy more of your food from local 
producers. And the reason for that is chances are good that they're going to grow it in a very responsible way. That's number one. Number two, you're going to help them preserve their land. And this is this is the what they call the agroecological thing. Like this is not just about food. It's also about land and species are going to take better care of their land because they are neighbors, right? They're neighbors. They want to take care of the water. They want to take care of their forests and their soil. So that's a good thing. You know, third, you're going to put money in the pocket of people you actually live nearby. So you're going to keep the money circulating in your own local economy. If you think about, you know, what do they say that, uh, you know, you, you buy from a local farmer and something like 90 cents of every dollar that you give them goes into his pocket. If you're buying global conglomerate food, you know, 3% goes into the supermarket's pocket and the rest of it goes off to St. Louis or to some other place in New Zealand or somewhere. So you want to keep your money circulating in your local economy. You want to protect your land, your, your own waters. What does it mean to clean up the Chesapeake Bay and the Delaware Bay? You've got to get farmers to be more responsible and you want them to be... Uh, you know, part of the community that you have a voice in. So this idea of of local food has many more positive consequences than just getting rid of chemicals. If people were to want to keep informed, they can take action as you've just described. But where should they go for news? Like, where do you go for your news? Oh, the internet is stuffed with recommendations for this sort of thing. I, you know, I would recommend if they if they want to do some internet searches, the first thing they ought to look for are these local food producers. And and both Maryland and Delaware have plenty of resources to find where they can go to farmers markets to buy local food, how they can sign up for what are called CSAs, community supported agriculture, sign up to become a member of a farm. That's a great idea. And the other thing is to become slightly more aware of food politics. This is both at the state level and the federal level. So when you see something like a five-year federal farm bill coming up, you know, you might want to put your voice into your local representative and say, like, why don't you put in a good word for local farmers, small farmers, not just pumping money into these giant corporations. This is this is not isolated to the food business. Obviously, the, every giant industry in this country uh, has their power concentrated in Washington. And that's where the real rubber hits the road. I, I still think that the local resistance to that is the way to go. How did you get here? To where? To being this person who has investigated and written now three books on this topic. And it seems that this will be what will define your career. You know, I, I come to the food thing kind of indirectly. I, I've been interested in environmental stuff for a long time. And that, the interest in the environment, was basically built on a love for the environment. This is a thing I talk to my students all the time. When, if the goal is to learn how to protect something, that's like the last stage. The first stage is to actually get to know a place. So you get to know a place, you get to care about it, and then you want to work to somehow protect it. So I've been, you know, an inveterate traveler. And when I take my students out canoeing on the Susquehanna River, for example, my goal is to get them to love this river, to understand why this is such a beautiful place. And then once they love it and understand that, for example, the farmers in, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, are pumping uh, you know, nutrients, animal waste and, and uh, synthetic fertilizers and stuff into the river, which is destroying the ecosystem of the river, they actually want to do something about it. But it's through the love of the place that gets you to be active in wanting to protect the place. And that's, you know, the writing for me is just like a manifestation of this desire to protect this watershed that we live in, which, you know, is the only one we've got. So for me, it comes from a a position of affection for the place that has led to investigation and then led to, you know, trying to do something about it. So what's next? Well, I just wrote a long magazine piece about people down in uh, coal country, West Virginia, who are trying to do ecological restoration in what are called mountaintop removal coal mining operations, which if you haven't seen them, 
are the most devastating destructions of, of landscape that I've ever laid eyes on. And I've, I interviewed all these people down there that are planting millions of native trees, and they're trying to do um, bring back native bees for pollinating and things like that. And this has got me thinking about writing a book about ecological rest and economic uh, restoration nationwide. Of course, these coal miners uh, have been devastated personally, just the way the landscape has, because the coal industry was just ruinous to people and economies as it was to landscape. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out ways to write about inspiring projects that are restoring ecologies and economics around the country. Well, inspiring from the pages of the books, inspiring in the classroom, on the river, and on the farm as well to students. Thank you so much. The new book is called Food Fight, GMOs, and the Future of the American Diet. McKay Jenkins, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.